0: Good morning, Orangewood. You'll notice that the room is set up a little differently. I'm going to explain that as I go. But it has to do with Jesus (laughs) and coming to Him this morning, uh, perhaps in a less routine way than we normally do. Not that routine is bad. Not that you have to always do something that's new and different, you don't, but I think you'll see where we're going as I go. We live in a crazy world and it seems to be becoming, it seems to be becoming more crazy with each passing week. One public high school principal knows this full well. This past week, his school board voted to relieve him of his position after years of service. Why? Here's my understanding of what happened. In 2018, a parent emailed this principal inquiring whether or not the school was adequately teaching about the Holocaust. A little bit of context here the county this school's in has 134,000 Jews residents, Jewish residents. Many students in this school are Jewish students. In his reply, the principal made statements that reflect the cultural confusion that we're all experiencing in this increasingly secular, postmodern, some would say post Christian. Culture that we live in, this culture that is increasingly blurring lines, lines that have been clear for centuries are becoming blurred of late. Lines being blurred between fact and fiction, truth and lies, and beliefs and objective historical fact. So here's the part of his email that got him in trouble in response to this parent who was inquiring about how the Holocaust was being taught in the school. He says this, quote, I can't say the Holocaust is a factual historical event, because I am not in a position to do so as a school district employee. He went on to say, you have your thoughts, but we are a public school and not all our parents have the same beliefs. In his reply, the principal seemed to imply that if if someone doesn't believe that an event occurred, it would be insensitive maybe even offensive to then teach that event as historical fact. Now I am not this man's judge, neither are you. There is always more to every story and I tend to be skeptical about what I read in the media these days. But here's what I know. We are in a truth crisis as a culture. If tolerance is valued over truth, if belief can take priority over historical fact, then we risk losing touch with reality itself. And we lose the capacity to learn from our mistakes and from others' mistakes made long before us. And this kind of cultural confusion, if, if you sense it, if it's something you kind of your radar's up about, it has a tendency to create a low-grade anxiety all the time, not a peace. Ignorance really is bliss <laughs> until you gain wisdom to see its folly. Today's passage shows us that this truth culture, this truth crisis is not new. It actually goes all the way back to the garden. There's always, sorry. It's not new at all. Um This passage deals with unbelief. It's Kind of a hard, unusual topic to talk about in a church full of people who have chosen to come out on Sunday morning to worship God. But this passage reveals a group of people in Jesus' day who struggled with unbelief towards something that was very factual. And what we learned from it this morning, it could be a little unnerving It has been for me to prepare for this message. So uh, before we go any further, let me pray. Let's ask God to come. Father God, ground us this morning in what is truth. Root us more firmly in your peace that passes even our own understanding. Holy Spirit, come and have your way with us in this room this morning. Blow with the fresh wind. Lead us deeper into the restoring power of the good news of Jesus. Reveal how you would have us respond to what you wanna say to us through your word this morning. Move us from deeper understanding to faithful action. Father, would you enable us, please, to follow Jesus even today. We pray this in Christ's name. Let me read the text. It's Mark 6, verses 1 through 14. It's actually 14a, not the whole verse of 14. So hear God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown. This is speaking of Jesus. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished saying, where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And look at that next phrase. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. In my prep this week, I've faced a challenging question. And this is the question. Does Jesus ever marvel at my faith in the gospel of grace? Has my exercising my faith in the gospel ever Marvel, my Savior. I'll explain how I landed there as we go. This passage today really easily breaks into two stories. Story one tells us of Jesus visiting Nazareth with his disciples, his hometown. It describes just how the people of Nazareth responded to Jesus, and it describes how Jesus responded to the people of Nazareth. And then story number two tells us what Jesus did next in response to what happened in Nazareth. So let's begin to unpack story number one. Jesus has returned to his hometown with his disciples. He goes into their synagogue and he begins to preach. We don't know the particular message he taught But we do, if we look at the context of all of his preaching opportunities up to date, we know that very, very likely in this synagogue of his youth, imagine that, Jesus, a man, is standing and teaching. And it's very likely this is what he had to say The kingdom of God is at hand because the Messiah King is here. All of the messianic prophecies have been fulfilled in me. I call you to repent of your faithlessness and to turn to me and put your trust in me as your Messiah. A little context here. This is the second time Jesus has visited Nazareth since his baptism. Galilee was the first place he went when he came out of the 40 days of wilderness, being tempted by the enemy. And he returned to Nazareth and went to the synagogue. And he read part of Isaiah 61, a messianic prophecy. And when he finished, he rolled the scroll up, sat down, and said, This prophecy is fulfilled in me this day. And then he said a few other things that actually uh, were convicting to those in his hearing in the synagogue. And he challenged the Nazareth people in the synagogue with their unbelief, with their lack of faithfulness. You know what they did? This is the first visit. You know what they did? They were incensed, they were angry. And they took him outside the city to kill him. And miraculously, it says, Jesus walked away. I love that. Now he's back. This time not alone. This time with his chosen disciples. They're not there as bodyguards, although they probably functioned in that capacity in this story. They were there as his followers. He's the rabbi. They're his pupils. And they're his witnesses. They've witnessed everything he's done up to this point, everything he's said. So up until this point, when Jesus went into a city, he attracted multitudes, crowds gathered around him, so much so that he and his disciples couldn't even eat. Houses were filled, roofs were torn off, Everywhere he went, he couldn't get away from the crowds. Now he's back in his hometown. Look what's not present. No crowd. His town people, his relatives, his family, they continue to resist his message and his Messiahship. In fact, they're deeply offended by him. And here's what's interesting. They're amazed at his teaching. They recognize that he preaches with power and authority, but they will not submit to it. They believe that he's done miracles. They recognize that through his hands, he's done amazing, miraculous things, from healing lepers to restoring paralytics He even raises from the dead. They acknowledge his miraculous abilities, but they refuse to recognize him as the Messiah. It's too scandalous for them to believe that this hometown common man could possibly be the Messiah. They've known him since he was wet behind the ears. They've watched him grow up with their own children. He's from a humble family. He perhaps was born by an unwed mother, conceived by an unwed mother. Humble training, humble occupation, just who does he think he is? To now show up in our synagogue and call us to repentance. The audacity of this man. There's no way he's the Messiah. Have you ever heard of the expression familiarity breeds contempt? It's an old one. It refers to extreme knowledge or close association with someone or something that leads to a loss of respect for them or it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, familiarity has bred dangerous amounts of contempt for the people of Nazareth towards Jesus. They're not open to being persuaded by him. They're not open, even in the view of objective, historical, Evidence being lived out in front of them. In verses five and six, it says this, and he, Jesus, this is stunning. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then verse six, he marveled because of their unbelief. Due to the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, Jesus was unable to do mighty works there. What does this mean? God's not powerful enough to heal people? That's not what it means at all. God can't do anything. Do you know that? Maybe I should change that. God can't do everything. What can he do? God will not do anything that is counter to his nature. And Jesus, we know, will not do anything unless his Father wills it first because Jesus is walking in complete submission to his Father. So what does it mean that he could not do any mighty work here? God can't act against his own nature. It is against God's nature to respond redemptively to an arrogant, prideful, rebellious, resistant person who is cold and hard-hearted towards God. It is our Heavenly Father's nature to respond to a broken and contrite sinner's movement towards Him. A heart that's repentant for sins recognized and God lovingly, graciously moves with redemptive and restorative works. Tim Keller puts it this way, says this, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive powers operate. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He, Jesus, could not do a deed that would not redeem. So Jesus healed people as a gracious outpouring of a loving father to one who was truly, truly turning from their sin and turning to God through faith in his son Jesus with all humility and brokenness, yielding themselves, offering themselves in total reliance upon God's grace, his mercy, his patience, Is enabling. Jesus couldn't do mighty work in Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. And in verse 6, it says that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. I want to point out to you that there's only two times in the gospel when Jesus marveled. Only two. The other time he marveled is, on a timeline, is a preceding event to this, when he runs into some Jewish men who are representing a Roman centurion who helped them build their synagogue in their town. And they tell Jesus that he has a sick servant, that he would like Jesus to heal. And so they come with him, and as they're coming to the centurion's house, servants come out. The centurion never speaks to Jesus. And the centurion sends his servants out, and he basically says, You are where un- I am unworthy for you to even come into my house. But I believe in you and I understand how authority works. Say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Certainly not in Nazareth. So two times Jesus marvels, both times as a reaction to people's faith or lack of faith therein to himself. So I return to my question. Would Jesus marvel at my trust in him this morning? Or my unbelief? Which? That's a challenging question. Have I allowed familiarity to breed contempt in my spirit? Have I become too familiar with Jesus, with the gospel, with Bible stories? Have I become too familiar with our style of worship here, how I worship, where I sit when I worship, with those I sit when I worship, how long I worship? Have we become too familiar with our songs, with our creeds, with our confessions, with taking communion on the first Sunday of every month, the way we take communion every first Sunday of every month. Listen, this is one of those things that you are more susceptible to the longer you've been in church. Familiarity breeds contempt. Is unbelief subtly, gradually increasingly working its way into my heart because I am not aware. We must be extra careful, church, not to allow familiarity to breed contempt in our spirits so that the spirit actually becomes quenched in us. What if his words, what if the Bible... No longer captivates you? What if his miracles no longer astonish you? What if his sacrifice on the cross no longer stuns you? His grace isn't all that amazing anymore. Oh, church, may we be careful and may we repent afresh, even this morning. We must soberly ask ourselves, is familiarity breeding contempt in us towards following Jesus? Is our contempt keeping us from Jesus, keeping us from accomplishing his mission for us? What about his mission for us to be his ambassadors in Maitland, in Orlando, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood? Is contempt working its way in? Let's look and see how Jesus responded to the contempt of his hometown people. How can we avoid this contempt ourselves? What can we learn from him? This brings us to story number two, and I'm going to go through this story pretty fast. What does Jesus do? How does he respond after being rejected by his hometown people, his family, his relatives? Here's what he does. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Instead of being crushed by rejection, deflated by discouragement, or feeling like a failure and marinating in that, he recognizes God's sovereign mercy and God's plan. And he dependently stays on mission. He refocuses on sharing the love of God in word and deed with others outside of Nazareth. He leads and goes to other towns and other synagogues and preaches God's truth to them. He doubles down on his mission. He sends out his 12 in pairs. Do you understand? What does he do when he's so utterly rejected by those that should have received him? He multiplies his mission by six. Sends the 12 out in pairs to be his ambassadors, to preach the gospel and call people to repent. And he gives them interesting instructions. He tells them this, go in pairs. Listen, when you go into mission, go with a team. This is not something you do solo. You do it with others. We do God's mission in teams, together, with one another. And then he says, travel light. Travel light. Don't be encumbered by the trappings of this world. Divest yourself. Unload what is keeping you from moving. For us, that means get freed up. Freed up from the idols of our culture. Your addictions to stuff, to food, to substances, to spending, to sex, to approval, to religious behavior, whatever it is. Get freed up. Repent of those things that you must have in order to be okay that are not Jesus. So he says, go unencumbered, divest yourself, and then he gives them their job. You know what it's to do? Share Jesus and call people to repent. That message never changes. Repent and believe. Do redemptive good works through serving others with those less fortunate, particularly in view. And then lastly, he says, expect contempt towards you. Expect to be rejected. And then he mentions persecution. Wow. That means that if you're on mission, some will have contempt for you. It means some will actively work against you. And it may mean that some may even try to kill you. Never rule out. The possibility of giving up your life for the sake of Christ. We only ultimately live for what we're willing to die for. And we are called to live for Christ. So, this morning, listen. We have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table again, and we're going to do it differently. This isn't going to be forced on anyone. But the thought is this. For about the next 15 minutes, once I set up communion and we're ready to roll, for about 15 minutes, you'll have the opportunity to apply this scripture to your life. And if God in any way has convicted you that you have become too familiar That familiarity has bred contempt with you, with things of God, with church, with his word, with Jesus, with the cross. And routine aspects of worship have actually become so ingrained. These traditions, some of the traditions about how we worship, they're more important to you than Jesus. Maybe. So come to this table this morning. Come to the table but come with a freshly repentant attitude. How might you do that differently this morning? Two prayer stations are available. You're going to have 15 minutes to take communion. In that 15 minutes, I encourage you, I ask you to consider what is the Holy Spirit leading you to repent of this morning? What mighty work have you lost faith that God could do in your life that you need to ask him this morning to do? Jesus could not do mighty works in Nazareth. Can he do mighty works in Orangewood? Yes, he can. To children of his who come with broken and contrite, repentant hearts and spirits. So this morning you will have the opportunity to come before the cross, pray, pray before God. Just you and God. Sit in a chair. Don't worry about anybody else. Come and do business, special business with God. Kneel at the cross. There's two cushions here. If posture is important, do that. Who cares what anyone thinks? Come to Jesus with a contrite and broken heart. Confess your sins to him. Re-up your faith in him as your Lord, as your Savior, as the Messiah King of a coming kingdom. Maybe you're in this room and you know you have cancer and no elder in this church knows it. And something inside of you is kind of embarrassed to say, elders, would you anoint me with oil? I want you to come. Consider coming. We'll have elders down here to pray and anoint you with oil and pray over you if you have any illness. That's what the Bible tells us to do. We should do it regularly. We're doing it this morning. Come and have an elder pray over you. If your marriage is falling apart, if you're struggling with pornography, if there's some sin in your past you've never told anyone and Satan has a hold of you because of that, come and confess to him. Come afresh to the Lord's table, renewing your commitment to him as your king, as your champion, as your savior, as your master. And then receive the elements. Does that make sense? Break your routine. Now listen, this is not about guilt manipulation. Do you have to get up out of your chair For God to meet you right where you are to do his work? Absolutely not. That is not the point. But if you're stuck in your lethargy, if you feel convicted that you need to get out of some ruts, maybe religious ruts, maybe irreligious ruts, then do something different this morning as an act of faith before God and come. Elders, I've asked some elders and staff and some ladies to come and be available to pray with you if you come down. Maybe nobody comes. Maybe lots of you come. It's not the point. But I've asked elders and some staff to come up. Now's the time. Come on up. Um, Elders that are going to administer the elements at the communion tables, come on up. So during this 15 minutes, take your time. Do business with God. Receive the elements. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you now to receive the Lord's table, a sacrament, a beautiful thing, a place where we're spiritually fed your grace, your enabling. Father, would you move in this place and draw us to yourself. Those that have a relationship with you are invited to this family table. May this table never become too familiar. And may the sacrifice that's represented by the elements never become too familiar to us. And listen, if there is someone in this room who's yet to trust Christ, or if you have a child who has yet to give a credible profession of faith to the elders of this church or the church you regularly attend, please withhold them from these elements. These elements are for those who come with faith in Christ and repentant and contrite spirits. Father God, work and move. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup and after supper, saying the cup, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, as you feel prepared, come to Jesus.